Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to the first episode of Beyond Busy for 2021. This is the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, and how people define happiness and success. All the big questions for work and life. My name's Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show, and on this episode I'm talking to Oliver Berkman. He's the former Guardian columnist with his column, This Column Will Change Your Life. He's also the author of a couple of brilliant books, including one of my favourite books, The Antidote, which we're going to talk a little bit about. And seeing as he has probably, for his sins, read more self-help books than anyone else, I just thought he'd be the perfect first guest for 2021. New Year, New You, and all that stuff. Uh, although, yeah, it's uh, New Year, same old shit, basically, isn't it, at the moment? So, yeah, if you're um, tuning in as this goes out, obviously we've just gone into this uh, new national lockdown, the final straight against COVID-19. Um, yeah, it feels pretty rough. And um, I think certainly I came out of Christmas feeling like, okay, when was the holiday thing? <laughs> when, when am I supposed to feel better and energised? So uh, if you're feeling like that, I totally feel you and uh, you're not alone. Um, I'm going to be doing a lot more. Uh, I'm going to be really, really trying hard with my um, Sunday emails rev up for the week, which goes out every Sunday to just really keep people's spirits up over the next few weeks. So if you're not signed up to that, just go to graymalcott.com and I'm just putting out a positive or productive idea every Sunday to just get you revved up and just keep your spirits going in this um, really difficult period that we're in right now. Um, so first episode for the new year, I'm just getting uh, the office back up to shape and uh, going through some big changes actually in the shed down here at the bottom of my garden, uh, basically turning half of the office into a kind of film set so that I can do, so I can record some digital courses, so I can have a, a really nice background when I'm on Zoom calls and when I'm on webinars and that kind of thing. So yeah, really just kind of embracing the whole like camera friendly angles and all that sort of thing and just putting a bit of thought and design into that so we're doing that bought lots of film kit which has been a sort of fun geeky little project and yeah be getting down to some filming over the next few weeks so excited about that excited just to be back into the the sort of day-to-day work it's been a a few weeks for me uh, took the last couple of weeks off before christmas and uh, nice to be getting back into things Um, and also just before we start i want to say thank you if you've bought a copy of how to have the energy my book with colette hennigan we put uh, an episode out just before christmas with me and colette talking about the book which we'll put a link to in the show notes at getbeyondbusy.com uh, we'll also put a link in the show notes, obviously, to the How to Have the Energy book. But yeah, we got off to a really good start with it. Um, unfortunately, all the bookshops are closed now. So yeah, that's not going to be helping our sales. Um, but it's, it's selling pretty well on Amazon. Good rankings on there, good reviews on there. And uh, yeah, we're pretty pleased with how uh, we've got off to a good start. So if you haven't bought How to Have the Energy, please do. These podcasts are free. They'll always be free. We try and keep the advertising and the sponsorship and the plugging to an absolute minimum and uh, I guess what I'm saying is what I'd love in return is just when I've got a book out please just go buy the book that's all I'm asking so if you get some value from these episodes on a regular basis then please go to bookshop.org or go to Amazon and buy a copy of How to Have the Energy that would make me very happy and uh, please do uh, tag me in it and uh, let me know on LinkedIn and Instagram that you've bought it and uh, that will just help us to spread the word as well so how to have the energy go and buy it so let's get into this episode Oliver Berkman as I said um, if you've not checked out his book The Antidote it's just really brilliant and um, really worth a read and he's uh, someone who really embraces uh, positive thinking but from a very kind of cynical perspective so um, The Antidote is happiness for people who can't stand positive thinking and uh, just really logical and philosophical and uh, I just really enjoyed this conversation so much so uh, let's get straight into the episode. This was recorded just before Christmas, down the line on Zoom, because Oliver is in the States. So let's get cracking. Here's my conversation with Oliver Berkman. I'm here with Oliver Berkman. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm really good. Yeah, so I think this is the first one I've recorded in the dark, <laughs> busy, <laughs> right. which is a symptom of me being in Brighton in the UK and you being in Brooklyn, New York. Yes, it's not going to be long till it gets dark here, but it's but it's five hours earlier in the day, so it'll be a while. But yeah, jealous of the sun streaming through your window <laughs> there, uh, if you're watching this in visual form. Um, so this... Um, recording sort of catches you at an interesting moment in your working life 
because uh, you've been writing this column for many years that I've been a big fan of. This column will change your life since 2006, right? It's, it's a long... It's uh, astonishing, yes, yeah. People, uh, one or two people have pointed that out to me before and it's um, it's always a shock to me to realise that they're saying something, like, you may not be, I don't know, but they're, they're generally meaning it as a compliment. It's like, wow, <laughs> it's such a consistent, long-running thing. Because the first thing I think then is like, oh my God, how old that's, can I be? How long? Too long. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, um, and so just for anyone who hasn't read the column, I mean, what was quite funny was when I, I just googled, this column will change your life, and the Guardian gets you to the page of the most recent ones, and then at the bottom it says, we found six hundred and sixty nine <laughs> occurrences of this column, which shocking, yes, yeah. I mean, it's just an astonishing, um, uh, just number to see in relation to writing because each of those pieces is presumably something that you know you have to obviously really think about and spend time on like they're all kind of little uh little babies in a way aren't they like when you write things like that they are though i do also think that like the discipline of of newspaper deadlines and the whole newspaper process is is really a good one um you sort of you have to try to come up with the right idea you have to come with them try to come with a really good idea and then you have to write whatever idea you've come up with, even if it's not a really good idea. You know, it's like, you have to, um, and you discover lots, you know, that, that's when you discover that actually the ideas you were much less confident about turn out to be the more popular po- columns and, you know, nobody knows anything, as they say. Yeah, so, and vice um, versa probably too, right? The ones that you're really confident on. Yeah, like, you know, maybe, maybe people don't respond to those as much. Absolutely, yeah. So um, it's just been a really good, it has its downsides, that kind of discipline and that kind of work. Um, rate but uh, there's something very useful if you're a sort of a bit of a perfectionist and a bit of a control freak like lots of us are and i certainly am it, it slightly uh, beats that out of you to have these kind of yeah. um, very yeah. hard and frequent deadlines yeah yeah for the last maybe three or four months i've been doing a weekly email newsletter and even just that mm-hmm. as someone who's used to writing sort of longer form stuff like long blog posts or books just to put something useful out there every week. I've, I've really valued the discipline of that more than I thought I would actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's been re- really an interesting lesson, but the column itself. So essentially, I mean, one of the things that I really love about it is that you, you analyze the self-help industry and positive thinking and psychology and, and these kind of areas, sometimes with the lens of a sort of wide-eyed student and more often with the eyes of a, a kind of cynic uh there's a a line in help where you you talk about being it's like you're the foreign correspondent like reporting back on the self-help industry so i guess my first question was like why did you start it did you feel like you wanted to gain knowledge or did you start it from a really cynical place i'm just like really interested in how it came about in the first place uh, i mean i think I, I think it was a little cynical at first i think i got less cynical um but I think it was a kind of a defensive cynicism, right? I mean, I think this happened because um, my editor at the time on Guardian Weekend magazine, Merrick Mills, noticed that I was always reading these kinds of books, you know, um, certain more the sort of, I think, more kind of time management and productivity books than uh, like how to deal with your deepest emotional problems kind of books. But, but um, you know, the, the, I don't think anybody really has an interest in anything unless they in some sense struggle with it and have an investment in it. So I think it would be hard to maintain, uh, you know, a completely jaded attitude towards something like self-help. If you did that, if your attitude was literally like, this is all worthless, like why, why would you, why would you do it? Um, and certainly what happened as the columns and years progressed was that, um, Although it was always fun and remained fun to sort of tease and mock the worst excesses of this genre, the really interesting part was actually um, the value in it. And and it was more fun in a way to kind of provoke my readers to be like to, to put aside some of their cynicism than it was to sort of um, uh, snark at the, at the people who sort of deserved some of that uh, cynicism. Uh, because yeah i think that you know maybe i'm just a little bit older than i was and that's it but like i think you know anyone would anyone who claims that they are not um interested in uh 
in learning a bit more about happiness or in figuring out how to deal with whichever of their particular, you know, hang-ups and neurotic tendencies they have. I think anyone in that who says that just probably hasn't doesn't know themselves well enough yet. Right. So, like, um, no, no yeah, one's yeah. too cool for happiness, are they? Do you know what I mean? Like, well, well, I think a lot of people are, like, on the out, in their outside bearing. But you're exactly right. No, exactly. It's not. A, it's not a thing that you're sort of that anyone is actually uninterested in, even if their form of being interested in it is uh, is to be jaded and and mocking. So, it came from a slightly strange and uh, a sort of maybe. Um, uh, sort of two-faced place in a, in a sense, but I think part of the journey of doing it was um, was to become sort of I, the other thing that ha- you know much more confident about just writing about this stuff and saying yeah you know we care about this stuff and I know readers care about it and I care about it. The other thing that sort of happened around me uh, over that time was that was that these genres of advice writing and um, how to stuff in general became I think a lot more. Um, sort of socially acceptable and right. it's it, and sort of scientifically backed in some cases and um you know all sorts of kind of publishing genres cropped up that that have a sort of self-help aspect to them without being the kind of uh you know uh think and grow rich kind of kind of classic original self-help books so you know i mean half the most popular stuff on on online is is always um practical tactical information and uh, and, yeah. and ways to ways to do things and that wasn't really the case in like 2000 and oh, 2006 yeah yeah I, I suppose 2006 the other way to think about it is it's a era pre instagram and pre twitter and pre facebook roughly around the time of facebook yeah. i suppose yeah facebook, i don't know facebook uh, twitter was 2009 i think wasn't it the really sort of the main iteration of it perhaps but, yeah. yeah 2008 2009 yeah. Like that. but like yeah that whole um so the culture that has obviously developed around that i guess is a culture of very very short snippets little quotes vignettes being shared all the time on instagram and and twitter and facebook and so on so it becomes a thing that people just have in their psyche maybe a little bit more than they did just the whole uh self-help kind of world right i think another effect of social media especially uh, in many ways negatively but in some ways positively is is it there is this sort of direct pipeline to people's unedited quick impulsive emotionally uh driven thoughts and you know therein lies all all the trouble of, of of social media and political polarization through social media and all the rest of it but it is also kind of you know it's i think it's become much more normal to talk about the ordinary psychological challenges that you face through just being human yeah um this whole kind of movement about the destigmatization of mental health and depression and anxiety and all the rest of it is part of that but it's also just like i mean it would have been unthinkable before social media to have you know, people with reputations to defend in the world talking in any way, in, in this kind of intimate way about any kind of struggle. And I don't just mean, you know, the occasional celebrity who who who, who uh, talks very candidly about really serious mental health issues. I just mean the ordinary notion of having, of like being overwhelmed by your to-do list, right? I mean, it wouldn't occur to you that the historian you saw talking on a on a tv documentary or the um journalist whose book you were reading or whatever it was it wouldn't occur to you that that to think that that person might be as overwhelmed by their to-do list as you and now we're all complaining about it all the time in uh, these kind of more intimate forums might have the same kind of struggles as you i mean that's right right yeah just just an interesting thing so um, i wanted to get into the the last column that you wrote um where you talk about Eight Secrets to a Fairly Fulfilled Life. Um, just before we do that, though, just back to the beginning. So your interest in productivity, I think maybe was a similar, you had a similar route into it to me, which was David Allen getting things done and Merlin Mann and 43 Folders, like that. Those are themes that and people that come up quite a lot, lot in your work. So was that the starting point for you or was there anything before that? I mean, I think there were things before that in my life, but I think, yes, that was the sort of wave that was cresting just as I got into it. And so um, that was very influential on my um, 
on my earliest uh, sort of the, the writing that I was doing it as a as a grown up. I mean, I think as I think as long back as I can remember, I have always been on the um, you know slightly geeky color coded revision timetable side of the of the human continuum. Uh, and I don't think that all my urges towards, you know, figuring out productivity and getting in control of my workload, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think they're all necessarily that healthy. <laughs> and part of what I've written about most recently, and you can, we can talk about it is like, is partly the sort of coming to terms with the limitations of, of those kinds of, um, ways of thinking. But, but in terms of stuff that really did make a difference, I mean, I think David Allen and getting things done is, retains a sort of extraordinary influence over this whole field as far as i'm aware of it anyway um even though i think quite a lot of that original system feels not appropriate to a lot of people's specific contexts that that sort of basic idea that you know in this world of unlimited inputs into your life you're going to have to uh have ways of storing them outside your head you're going to have to be uh confident that you're capturing everything without needing to to sort of keep track of it in your own head and, and endlessly scroll things on the back of your hand um that kind of uh, things that seem to sort of echo certain aspects as i understand it of um the, of, of stuff coming from computer science about about the way that information is managed you know turning it into a in the context of impersonal of personal information management yeah obviously had a big yeah and i think for me it was the the capturing everything, getting it out of your head, and then the regular review were probably the two things for me in David Allen's work that, you know, just really stuck with everything else right. I've done since, really. Right. Like huge influences. This could, this could get very geeky. Couldn't oh, it? totally. And I would go there. So as the interviewer, <laughs> if you want it to stop, if you want it to not do, you have to, uh, you have to uh, exert some influence. Yeah. Well, I might come back to Merlin Mann and Inbox Zero and stuff later, but um, let's talk about this eight secrets to a fairly fulfilled life and the word fairly in brackets. Um, and essentially what you're doing is boiling down the, the eight biggest lessons from, from your many years of, of reading. You've probably read more self-help books than most humans as well, right? <laughs> another, I mean, shock, a, another shocking thought. Yeah. That, that, um, that's a really interesting thing in itself. Yeah. I, I sort of tried a little bit in that piece to back away from the idea that it was a summation of everything that I'd, uh, learned. I think that's kind of almost a crazy task to try to do um yeah uh, also like i've changed completely over the time so it's very much yeah. like my life philosophy now which i hope is better for experience and time and reading but but who knows um i also wanted to make it um uh tailored to the strange times in which we find ourselves you know i think there could be um there are different times soci socially and economically where maybe different ways of thinking are more helpful but um you know with all with uh you know gestures at everything to use the internet uh terminology with everything that's going on i think that why well, i was trying to pick out a few things that might that might help in that context yeah so let's talk about those and then i was also going to ask you my follow-up question was going to be what were the things that after you passed the deadline and you sent it off you thought oh, i should have said that and it should have been nine or ten so let's <laughs> i'll give you a chance to mm, yeah. fill those ones in afterwards if um uh, if you're game for that, but let's just quickly rattle through the eight because I think this is just really valuable stuff and just a distillation of so many things. So the first one is um, that there's always too much to do. Tell us about that. Well, I think this is kind of fundamental, and it's fundamental to the to the book that I've just been finishing up the the main draft of. This, I think that an awful lot of productivity advice. This goes beyond productivity, but let's look at it in that context. An awful lot of productivity advice is guilty of uh, maintaining the illusion that if you follow this advice, if you get the right tactics and techniques and you put in a hell of a lot of self-discipline, you are going to get done everything important that, um, that feels like you ought to be doing it in your life. And I just think there are two sets of reasons why this is just never going to happen, right? Firstly, it's just that what matters is an is a totally malleable category so there's no reason to believe that everything you want to uh achieve in your life will be achievable in the time that you have 
uh, or that um, you know all the demands that other people place on you, you'll necessarily have the capacity to fulfill. Um, like, why should you? You're a, you're a finite human with finite time, finite energy, and that world is is infinite. Um, the other part, of course, is that um, in certain contexts, uh, getting really, really productive and efficient at dealing with things uh, generates more things to do and makes you busier by um, by sort of creating this hyper efficient machine that then suck, effectively sucks in more work from the uh, from the outside environment. Uh, you know, this is Parkinson's law at its most the most simple version of this that that work expands to fill the time available for its completion. Um, I think that, you know, I do try to stay on top of my email, but one thing I have learned about staying on top of your email is that the better you get at replying to email, the more email you get because you, you generate, um, you know, uh, replies to your replies and, and so on. Uh, and so I think it's really important to start from the understanding that, um, both the ambitions you can have and the demands that other people might make of you are liable to greatly exceed um, anything uh, that you're capable of doing with a single finite life, precisely because, not because you, I think people should despair and, and be resigned and be depressed and give up, but precisely because that, I think, empowers you to um, to sort of have the confidence to pick the things that you really want to focus on and to let a bunch of other stuff fall by the wayside because if you're going to definitely be disappointing somebody in your life then i think it's kind of easier to say okay well the goal of pleasing everyone is off the table uh the goal of getting everything done is off the table so what actually matters the most um and what what trade-offs given that i have to make trade-offs what what trade-offs am i going to make if you don't do that and you keep pursuing this feeling that you're one day going to get on top of everything i think one of the things that happens in my experience anyway is that you spend your whole life kind of like clearing the decks, doing the unimportant stuff, getting little things out of the way. But you don't really get them out of the way because as previously mentioned, you just get more of them. And and so you have to sort of, you have to decide what matters most to do and do it and kind of be willing to put up with some of the consequences of that. So it's kind of, that's why I think starting from the idea that there'll be always be too much to do is is really empowering. It also just, you know, it cuts you some slack. It tells you that the reason that you're overwhelmed is, and I think this is true, is a sort of structural phenomenon of the human situation and the socioeconomic situation in which people find themselves, not because you're a failure and you haven't uh, used enough energy and found the right uh, tactics. But I think it is important to stress, you know, it's not just like, and therefore be resigned to your fate. I think it is an empowering message. I think it is the way to start making good decisions about what you're going to neglect if you see what i mean precisely so you can do the things that matter the most yeah for sure my uh, one of my best friends when he first read getting things done probably back around that time 2006 something something around there he started implementing the the sort of system part of getting things done and was just finding himself in his house in the evenings really annoying his girlfriend because he was just trying to tick things off and get through the list. And he was just like really relentlessly pursuing this end goal of like finishing everything. Yeah. Yeah. And just finding himself getting more and more miserable. And I couldn't quite believe it because I'd read the book too. And it seemed to have really taken a lot of my stress away, but he, you know, he, he's an engineer, like he had an engineering uh, sort of mind approach to it and found it really difficult to, you know, to switch off from the idea of the next thing, to be done i mean i think it's really interesting in the context i mean tell me if you don't want to geek out on david allen stuff too much i really admire that book and i also uh david allen has also said some couple of very nice things about my book so i don't want to be in a position of uh, snarking back i think that something that i missed i don't think it's his fault in the writing of the book but i think something that i missed is that that book is about and he says it right there at the front, you know, it's about functioning calmly in the midst of having an overwhelming number of things to do. It is yeah. not about reaching the situation where you no longer have an overwhelming number of things to do. And, you know, you think you want to get to the point where you have nothing on your to-do list, but that would be kind of terrible in a way. It would be like, um, what would there be in your life if you had nothing that felt important and urgent to, uh, to do? 
I think the one place where I do sort of fault him a little bit is on this idea of the someday maybe list, which is the thing that you're supposed to put all your sort of grand ambitions that you haven't got time for right now uh, onto it. And in my case, anyway, that did sort of function as a as a way to sort of postpone things that, that actually mattered, you know, because you say like, oh, well, I'll get to that someday. Um, in fact, you know, the only the only time it ever is is now, really. So you've got to do some of those things that really matter right away. Yeah, for sure. Um, I love this one. When stumped by a life choice, choose enlargement over happiness. I'm in danger of this quote getting attributed to me online, I've noticed. I did make very clear in the article this comes from um, a Jungian uh, psychotherapist whose work I really admire called James Hollis and who I've, who I've interviewed. Um, and there's a whole way of fitting this into Jungian psychology that we probably don't need to go into uh, right here and now. But the basic idea here, I think, is that, um, you know, we're kind of terrible at predicting uh, what makes us happy. There's plenty of research that I'm sure you're aware of about, you know, how difficult it is for people to predict uh, what will make them happy. They, they really think that moving to a different city is going to transform their lives. And then they move and they realize that they brought themselves with them with all their, with all their existing problems. Uh, or Houses uh, is the classic one for me, right? You see so many people on the tube in London and they're reading the free newspapers with the property porn in yeah. the back. And it's like, I've got three bedrooms, but and I'm miserable. But if I have four bedrooms, it'll all be fine. Right, right, right. <laughs> and like people I, really yeah. fall into that trap a lot. Especially if you then end up having to commute further to get to that house, yeah, which, right. is, which is far greater negative, uh, according to most of the research, than, um, than the positive of the extra space. Um, but also, I think maybe there's something a little bit suspect about happiness as the goal in the first place. I wrote about this a little bit in my earlier book. Um, in some sense, by definition, we all want to be happy because that's what happy means. But, but you know, I think that making your life choices in terms of what you think will guarantee the most unbroken, upbeat moods is kind of a little bit, strikes many people anyway, is a little bit meaningless. And what's so great about this enlargement question, that will this choice enlarge me or diminish me, is um, uh, that... Uh, well, two things. Firstly, I think it's very much in favor of growth. It's that idea of like, instead of separating the things that are going to make you feel cheerful from the things that are going to make you feel a bit scared, it, it separates the things that are going to be challenging, but in a good way from the things that are um, just going to like make your soul shrivel. Um, I remember uh, a point at which in my decade or so ago here when I was sort of vaguely occurring me to stop to, to go back to the UK from the US and I couldn't I couldn't work out what, what made me happiest. But it was very clear after asking this question that uh, at that point for me in my life, it would have been a sort of a retreat from things that needed confronting to do that. Uh, and I should to go back home. Yeah, right. At that point, and only for me, and this is not a rule about whether people who are overseas should go back home or not. Yeah, for sure. But but just that um, you usually know when you're trying to work out whether to stay in a relationship, leave a relationship, stay in a job, leave a job, you may not know which is going to make you happiest, but you do sort of usually know which one would be kind of running away from things and which one would be uh, facing up to things. And it can be either in every case, right? It can absolutely be the case that like staying in a marriage is the good challenge. And it can be the case that leaving a marriage is the good challenge, you know, um, uh, but it's that idea of good challenge that, that I think you get in that idea of enlargement that you don't get if you just try and think what's going to make me happiest uh, a year from now, two years from now. Yeah, and sometimes you kind of have to have that, you have to sort of see things as like the vision in like three or four months' time and look at that rather than look at the pain that you might have to go through to get there as well, right? Like you have to kind of yeah, but uh, yeah, to, to work out yeah, what that yeah. gut feeling looks like. You know? Right, no, absolutely. And you also have to sort of separate kinds of pain, right? It's like there are totally painful relationships that you shouldn't be in because they're painful or abusive or whatever. And then there are relationships where like the pain is actually you being challenged on your bullshit and it's a really good opportunity to become a, a more uh, a more mature person. Yeah. 
The future will never provide the reassurance that you seek from it. I really like this one as well. This whole thing is just me therapizing myself, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but I think that's what most good um, uh, advice writing is anyway. So. <laughs> right, for sure. I, I think a lot of us uh, take the approach, especially in uncertain times like these, um, but take the approach to planning that what we're trying to do when we set goals or try to sort of set the direction of our lives is we're sort of demanding that the future, that we're demanding to know now in the present that things are going to turn out uh, a certain way in the future. And I think that's what worrying basically is, right? Worrying is this yeah. idea that like, if you keep like throwing a lasso around the future, if you keep like trying to grab uh, uh, the future and bring it and get it sort of in line, then at some point you're going to be able to relax and be like, okay, it's plain sailing from here. And I think it's really interesting to see that this is not just like unlikely, but kind of, it's kind of like systematic, it's intrinsically impossible because the future hasn't happened yet. So literally anything could happen at any moment. Um, and what, and that's very liberating, I think, because it means that you can, you can totally plan and you can absolutely make investments in the future. I'm not, this is not a, a advice to sort of just like be totally spontaneous in that annoying way some people have um but that that you've got to sort of learn to separate the idea of investing in the future from needing the future to go a certain way and i am not particularly good at this but any of any day that i manage to sort of just be curious about what's going to unfold instead of needing things to unfold a certain way is is a way better day um especially with small children uh, because you know uh, there's nothing guaranteed to make it harder to get a toddler dressed and out of the house than re <laughs> really needing the toddler to get dressed and out of the house <laughs> on a specific schedule and I think that's just an extreme case about how the whole world works really you know like the less you really need things to go a certain way the more interesting it is to just be present to the experience of how they how they end up going yeah kids really force the idea of being present on you right? yes and not being in control of the world. Yeah. I think. yeah, yeah. Um, it also reminds me of um, there's perhaps the world's most stoic bumper sticker uh, is one that I walked past on a camper van down the road from me in Brighton. And it just says, um, control is just merely an illusion. <laughs> and whenever I go past that, I'm like, oh, thank God for that. It's just such a, <laughs> yeah. just thank you for the reminder every single time. I just think it's, uh, yeah. it's so lovely. Um a lot of people have been talking about imposter syndrome. I've noticed that it's cropped up a few times in um, in recent episodes of this podcast as well. And it feels like it's a very current um, issue on social media and you know, people just talking about it a lot in general. And so you talk about it by saying the solution to imposter syndrome is to see that you are one. Um, did you put that one in there because you'd noticed that it was a, a current kind of zeitgeisty thing? A little bit, yeah, I'd have actually, yeah. I mean, it's also, I have something I've thought about for a long time and to some extent struggled with, although it's actually of these, of these uh, pieces of advice, it's, it's, it's slightly more one that I see in other people than myself, I think. But I think it is just incredibly, um, I've basically never got more positive feedback than a piece, than to a piece I wrote very quickly years ago, which had the headline, everyone is totally just winging it all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, was about some very minor mistake that Barack Obama had made. This all seems impossibly long ago now that uh, anyone yeah. would uh, be critical. Simpler times. Yes, <laughs> that anyone would be critical of the Obama administration. Yeah. But um, I remember was, when Obama used to do like something really minor and yes. it would be like a major news story for three days. Yeah, just like, incredible. Just it's, incredible. Everything's just, flipped. Right, right, right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. But, but um, yeah, and that was just telling the story of how, like, you know, I feel like my whole process of growing up and becoming an adult was a one of and, and growing up through adulthood was one of um, realizing that I, I kept thinking there was somebody somewhere who knew what they were doing, you know. So you, I, I you grow up uh, with a newspaper coming on the breakfast table every day. You you, um, you assume that like or I found myself assuming that like whoever puts that together really understands like the world and they know exactly what they're doing. You work in a newspaper office, it's just a constant chaos. Everyone's fighting fires all the time. Uh, so then you think, well, maybe it's people in government who know what they're doing. And then, you know, 
you might know, I'm sure you do know one or two, I know one or two people who work in the sort of lower reaches of the civil service or whatever. No, they're just making it up as they go along as well. And, like, and it goes all the way through. Now, I think in recent years on both sides of the Atlantic, um, this is all, it's become a bit more, it's become a bit harder to ignore that, that, you know, people in positions of high authority can be deeply incompetent. I think it's not just because of the people who've ended up in those positions. I think it's also because of the nature of the challenges. Like, it's kind of absurd to think that anyone would know how to handle a global pandemic, which is not at all to say that many leaders shouldn't have done it much, much better or deferred to the experts much, much more than they did. But I, but there are sort of things built into the nature of our times that feel like, yeah, I mean, right, we are all going to be improvising everything as we go along. It's and- also much easier to be caught out if every single person that surrounds you has a camera on them yes, right absolutely, yeah, totally yes totally <laughs> and just 24 hour just reporting information yeah no completely completely and so what all i want to say in this in this point really is just that like you my imagined reader you know don't do anyone any service by thinking that it's just you who's an imposter it's true that you don't know what you're doing but this is universally true <laughs> um and this still surprises me right because i got a res- i got a nice email in response to that article from someone who is a, uh, a pediatric doctor saying that it, had, that it had helped him in various ways. And I was like, I realized then that I had was still guilty of thinking that my son's pediatrician, his doctor, uh, was the last bastion of like total authority because I just completely trust, right? If there's any issue, you'd go to the doctor and you just like, this, I just hope this guy knows exactly what he's doing. This wasn't his doctor who emailed me, but it's just like, oh no, even medical professionals <laughs> are on some level winging it. And um, I think it is ultimately uh, very, very liberating. And I hope it will stop, help some people stop beating themselves up for feeling like frauds, not, not because they need to sort of build up their confidence, but because they actually need to see that, you know, we're all, we're all doing this. So. It's also like one of the things around COVID-19 is that the narratives have changed over time. And so originally it was the most, um, you know, obvious symptom of COVID is a continuous cough. And then more recently they've come out and said, actually the most obvious symptom of it is if you lose your sense of taste and smell. And and then you get people criticizing that and saying, well, they don't know what they're doing. And it's like, well, they are winging it by the nature of it's a new virus that the science is new. And so like we have to wing it when it's such a, a new emerging changing thing anyway yes and i actually think if we were a bit more honest about that it would be easier to see and maybe even to limit some of the effects of the really bad incompetence and irresponsibility that i think there has been but like i i don't think you for example i don't think you helpfully i don't think it's a helpful way of of criticizing uh the president here for example where to 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 use this rhetoric of him of him being responsible for every single death that has happened because I think that a very great and uh, sort of well functioning president would also have presided over a very large number of deaths. So actually, it's actually better for focusing the political criticism of people doing bad stuff if we can be honest about the fact that on one level all of us are just uh, are um, are improvising, and then you see there are certain people who are really you know improvising and shouldn't be in the roles that they are improvising. <laughs> yeah, I posted something recently which was talking about our government here and I was kind of saying um it's really inspiring when you realize that people can get into positions of power when their their competence does not match their confidence right. and then actually you can take that as well if <laughs> Boris Johnson thinks that he can be the prime minister then we, you know, I could do anything. We can yeah, do anything, no, right? Like it's, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's a hugely motivating thing. Yeah, no, um, let's talk about a couple of the other ones, and then I want to touch about some other things sure. as well. Um, this one really stuck out for me. Selflessness is overrated. Yeah. So what I wanted to say here was that, um, I mean, I mean, I'm being a little bit provocative in phrasing it in that way, I think. But I, what I really wanted to say here was two things. I mean, firstly, that a lot of people, I think feel uh that to sort of be a good person um 
they have to live with a kind of self-denial they have to they have to do things that um they, they sort of find unpleasant to do um that you know we live in this world with so much sort of pain and suffering in it that if you're not really sort of sacrificing in a very serious way you, you you're not really decent and then there's a bunch of other people who are always endlessly going on on social media about how selfless they are and they're doing it for personal branding purposes which isn't selfless at all um and i really just wanted to make the case for the idea that like things that you deeply enjoy doing there's like a there's something it's almost a little bit of a mystical point i suppose but like there's there's something meaningful about the fact that you really like what you really like and uh i think it often is a sign that that is something that like contributes to the world that apart from anything else you'll have the motivation to do i i sort of rail against the idea that at a time of um you know say in a pandemic uh i don't think that uh i mean i think plenty of the people working in emergency services are astonishingly courageous and have just amazing stamina i don't think that if that's not you that means that you can't sort of make a crucial contribution even if the crucial contribution is like busking in your local park at a safe social distance from everybody so that they find their so that the you know nurse on the way home from work has a slightly more uplifting experience or whatever um and so i i, I think it can be quite radical and i'm sort of paraphrasing uh as i say in the piece i'm paraphrasing susan piver the buddhist teacher here but like it can be quite radical sometimes for some of us to ask um what uh we would enjoy doing with our discretionary time yeah that line really really stuck with me when i and it's interesting because actually like you know i think it it manifests in a lot of different ways i think there's definitely a kind of gendered part of it there's definitely like women get the message in our society that like they've got to make sure everyone else is happy and 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 healthy before they look after themselves but i also think that in the world of productivity which i think skews i think it would be fair to say skews male um there is also this kind of different kind of self-denial, which is like, I can't feel good about myself until I am on top of everything and everything is done. And um, that's another reason why it's good to remember that you won't ever have everything done because then you see how stupid it is to postpone feeling good about yourself until then. So there, this kind of self-denial sneaks its way in in all sorts of different ways. And I don't think it's usually very helpful i think it, it it causes people to sort of hate the 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 socially beneficial things they do and therefore end up doing less of them um and like you know do something fun because because then you're going to keep wanting to do it and whatever joy it brings to other people is going to keep going and going and going instead of um instead of taking this kind of enormous effort to try and do it for like an hour a month or something as you as you were talking there, it just really reminded me of um, there was a tweet that you wrote, and I was trying to get it up on my screen, and I, I can't find it. But you you tweeted a little while back, and it said something like, "I'm reminding everybody, including myself, that when you wake up in the morning, you don't start with a, a productivity deficit uh, bank account, and then you spend spend the day trying to get back to zero. Can you remember the exact right. wording? Yes. No, I mean, actually, I remember pretty much the exact wording, and I should have said deficit. It's a better word, I think, than debt. But no, I said you, you don't start each morning in a sort of productivity debt, and then it's you, in a desperate, and then you spend the day like desperately trying to get back to a zero balance. You might as well start from the thought that you start the day at a zero balance, and like everything that you do uh, is credit in your, in your bank account. Now, as a couple of people pointed out, you know, in a sense, if you're in a salary job, you do start the day in a debt. Like you're being paid money that you <laughs> yeah. have to that you have to that you, that you have to do. And of course, plenty of people start the day in, in financial debt of the yeah. most literal kind. And also, if you're freelance and or run a business, right? There's a there's a there's a need to to generate. You have yeah. to get things done, but I think that you don't have to. Um, you don't have to add this kind of existential notion that you're not a good person or you haven't earned your place on the planet. If you don't do anything like every morning you get up, you could do absolutely nothing. It is true that for most of us, 
that would eventually have some sooner or later, maybe sooner would have some bad consequences. But, um, uh, but I think that there's an important distinction there. You still don't have to, right? It's like, you're going to want to, because you are not going to want to default on your rent or your mortgage. You're not going to want to fail to be able to feed your family. But, but there's something empowering about understanding that that is still on some level uh, a choice. And you did ask, by the way, if there were any like lines, I, things I would have added to this that I thought about later. Yeah, yeah. There's just one that springs to mind because it's that same point, basically, which is a quote from um, a psychotherapist called Sheldon Kopp, who wrote a book a long, long time ago now called If You Meet the Buddha on the Road, Kill Him, after a famous Buddhist saying. And he says... Um, uh, I'm just trying to get this quote right. You're free to do whatever you want. Uh, let me get this exactly right. Uh, you're free to do whatever you want. You have only to accept the consequences. And I think this is one of those things that, like, it really bears thinking about at some length, you know, uh, because it's actually uh, an incredibly powerful insight that sort of, I think, links a lot of the other stuff I'm trying to say here that um, th- th- there is very little that you might feel you can't do in life that you actually can't do. Uh, it's just that, I mean, there are some things, but it's just that it's just that there's a trade-off and you have to decide which trade-offs you, you want to make. And um, uh, anyway, I just think that's a very sort of uh, uh, powerful idea when you find yourself railing against the world and like the fact that you wish you could do certain things and you can't it's like well you maybe can it's just a question that you have to like take full responsibility for what that's going to do to your life and the change it'll make to your income or to your relationship or to your uh how much free time you have or or or, or something like that so um i really like that insight as well yeah yeah i definitely feel sometimes i can jump out of bed and already start to feel like quick graham like you yeah. really need to maximize this time particularly on um days if i'm you know getting up earlier or I, I know i have a lot on or whatever it's like there are those days where it just feels like a kind of sense of mission right yeah and nothing wrong with that right it's just that i think that the mission should be to create some cool stuff in the world yeah to have some to make people feel a bit happier to generate some income as opposed to like, can I just or, about or assuaging my own guilt? That's what's going on, right? Like, it, there's a there's a guilt if I don't tick off these things today or do these things today, right? And the great thing about remembering that you could have stayed in bed is that you get to feel brilliant about every single thing you actually did do. I think this is probably quite useful. Like, even if, you, if you're in a really bad rut as well, I suspect like it's a good way to sort of because you can put like brushed teeth on this list. No one needs to see the list, right? You can add made a cup of coffee like you did a lot of things <laughs> yeah for sure yeah absolutely um it so you started to talk about buddhism there and i noticed so you wrote this book the antidote um which was also one the one that i saw david allen speaking very highly of he was on um i think he was on tim ferris's podcast and he was just raving about the antidote and i was like wow that's pretty cool yeah i'm uh, i'm uh, yeah i'm i'm uh I'm aware of this. I've been told about this. It's that, kind, of, kind of amazing. That must yeah, feel yeah. good, right? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> That's cool. Um, so it's happiness for people who can't stand positive thinking. And I noticed that there's a couple of chapters in there where you talk quite a lot about Stoicism, Buddhism. Like, are those sort of areas where you've investigated and felt like this is stuff that really sticks for me? Like, it really just felt like, you know, there, there, it was such a big influence on... Um, that book in terms of happiness so those are ideas that in some ways are well they're the 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 antithesis the antidote of of a lot of other productivity thinking yeah i, th- I think so i mean uh, in the years since i wrote that book and i do not claim the credit for this uh, obviously stoicism has has got a really high profile now there are a ton of sort of accessible books on it buddhism was already in that state i think uh in the west um long before i wrote that book um and these ideas, they do all sort of, they do resonate a lot. I don't think Stoicism and Buddhism are kind of identical, but they do have a lot in common. And they do have a lot in common with them. Um, all sorts of ideas that ultimately go back into sort of various spiritual traditions. So if you go far enough back in kind of Hinduism or even Christianity, you know, you get to a lot of these same kinds of insights. Um, 
I think the stoic stuff struck me as so powerful just because, well, it has a slightly positive thinking tinge to it, right? It's all this stuff about how, you know, it's not your circumstances that make you distressed. It's your, it's the beliefs you hold about your circumstances. But whereas a sort of old school stereotypical positive thinker is going to say, and therefore you should change your beliefs so that they're really positive and happy ones. I think the stoic emphasis that I like is to do with like bringing your beliefs into uh, accordance with with reality, right? So it's um, it's about sort of seeing the ways in which you have a kind of hysterical level of anxiety about something that doesn't need to be that bad. One of the things I talk about in the book is this idea of negative visualization, you know, um, really, really thinking through in detail how bad the thing you're worried about could be. And that helped me realize that, you know, I have spent, I had spent so much of my life sort of with a kind of nebulous notion that total catastrophes were going to happen if I didn't do this or that or stay on top of this work or excel in this university exam or whatever the heck it was. And the sort of positive thinking approach is to say, no, no, you're going to do well. You're going to get it done. You're going to get a really good grade. Just visualize getting an A and, and you know, you're going to, but the negative visualization approach is to say, okay, let's assume it does actually go wrong in the way that you fear. Would that be the sort of world ending apocalypse that you're, that you're envisaging? And once you see that that's not the case in almost every context, once you see that, um, you know, there would be some future for you uh, the day after you, you know, screwed up that article or didn't get a great result in that exam. Um, it, it's much more calming. And apart from anything else, actually leaves you in a better position to try to perform well uh, at whatever the, the challenge is. So um, that was really helpful to me in, um, in the stoicism part of it. Certainly. Yeah, and it's like um, people you know it's a cliche what's the worst that can happen mm-hmm. but it's actually not a rhetorical question is it like if you start to actually visualize that then it's it's incredibly freeing yeah no i think it really is i mean th- there's sort of two levels to it right there's the there's the everyday way in which we go around worrying about some minor thing as if it was equivalent to like an asteroid falling on our house and then there's the way in which we worry about genuinely terrible things happening, um, either on a sort of planetary or political scale or to people we love. And even there, it's different because those things really do matter and it's not sensible to sort of pretend that they're nothing. But even there, um, I think you, there's something really beneficial to be gained from, from sort of understanding that they're not... Um, like nothing is going to kill you except the thing that kills you. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and in the, the latter case, you're not going to be around to worry about it. So, so, and you know, there are just so many stories of sort of what's now called post-traumatic growth, you know, people, people thriving after the most terrible experiences um, precisely because they have had to confront things that like none of us would ever reasonably choose to, uh, to confront. So that's the sort of extreme version of that. Uh, is, is yeah. So let's jump to the other extreme of Stoicism and Buddhism. Um, so I think, is it in The Antidote or is it in Help, where you talk about you read a book by Brian Tracy called Goals, uh, and it just it just really made me laugh the way yeah. you talked about it's that. So I'm still slightly beating up on him in my new book that I've just um, <laughs> so nothing ever changed. But I think... Um, it feels like punching up, you know. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to be mean about people who have a smaller profile than me or a smaller fortune. But I think he can cope with a bit of. Uh, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I think he's doing all right. Dark. Yeah, exactly. But you just yeah. you described it as like uh, it was a book that put knots in your stomach or something. Like the 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 way you described it was just like so funny. <laughs> so, yeah. No. It's. <laughs> I, I mean, he, he does generally stress me out with his uh, with his enthusiasm. It's uh, <laughs> a personality thing, I guess. But yeah. Sorry, well, no, eat that frog. Great advice. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is. I think it is. Um, I'm trying to remember if he has the. Um, anyway, never mind. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could just carry on stalking for a while. Let me. If not, he has the trademark. No, not, I don't yeah. think it's his trademark. Is it? It's not his. No, um, I was going. No, no, I was going to say if he has the. Um, he doesn't. There's. There's a. There's. 
well, I think you may mention this thing about um, this study uh, about writing down your goals, the Yale goal study, which I write about in the antidote where um, they asked, um, they found something like that, like the 3% of the graduating class of Yale University who had written down their goals had more wealth after 20 years than the other 97% combined. And like a whole bunch of self-help authors rec- uh, reference the story. I don't know. I don't know if Brian Tracy does, so I don't want to. I don't want to uh, wrongly accuse him, but it never happened, as far as anyone can tell, right? It's a completely. It appears to be a complete myth that this study um, ever took place. And when various self-help writers have been asked about where they got it from, they get. They say they got it from each other, and it goes round in a, in a perfect circle. So, <laughs> um, now there is a little bit of evidence since then that you know articulating goals that um, no one's suggesting that there's no role for writing down your goals but um but this particular thing where the only difference between stupendous wealth and poverty was whether you'd written down your goals uh, as far as we can tell that's just uh, something people want to be true but it isn't true it's kind of like the productivity version of the stanford marshmallow experiment right that it's all about um self-control and then everything will be fine yes now that experiment did happen and was much more reputable but uh, but it's been um but other interpretations have been put on it since that, that sort of undermine it. Yeah. Um, we've got a few more minutes um, left. And um, one of the things I wanted to touch about, because this podcast is called Beyond Busy, and we've talked a lot um, in this episode about some of the the sort of existential challenges that, uh, you know, spawn productivity thinking and, and all of that. So I just wanted to ask you if you think you're addicted to busy and what you're relationship with busy has been like over the years like do you think that's changed and how do you feel about it now yeah i think i am in recovery you know i think i'm <laughs> i think i'm addicted to busy in the same way that i mean i'm not even kidding about this actually i think i'm addicted to busy in a in a in a parallel way that people who've been through alcoholics anonymous are alcoholics for the rest of their days even though they're not drinking or that's how they right think. okay so, now, yeah, no. i don't want to make the comparison on levels of intensity or severity i don't want to yeah. struggle with alcoholism by comparing it to me having a too long to-do list but i do think that like it is that kind of i am someone who if given half a chance will slide back into that thing of like trying to achieve such massive efficiency and constant motion and escape velocity that I will suddenly become like, you know, on top of everything. And that you then, what actually happens is that you use busyness as a way to not face the slightly scarier fact that you have limited time and resources and you have to sort of make some, some tough decisions and do difficult work. And that to the things that you really end up being proud of producing probably involved some boredom, certainly involved some long haul, work and that you know bouncing off to email uh, or bouncing off to cross lots of items off your to-do list is kind of equivalent certainly for me psychologically to you know bouncing off to social media and reading celebrity gossip like one of them feels virtuous the other one feels uh non-virtuous but they kind of fulfill the same function so yeah i think i have to be i, I actually think that the the 12 step thing is, is bizarrely appropriate in certain ways. You have to sort of, you have to accept that like, this is what your personality is like to some extent. You have to accept that the world will always be full of like lures to get you back onto that uh, treadmill. And once you've done that, you're actually really empowered to like be, okay, like I know what I want to do is try to like get in control of every possible task that I could generate or have in my productivity system. But I also know that what I, will be pleased that I did was to like pick the three things that, that matter the most that I have some time for and just deal with the fact that, that everything else is that, at least for now. And so presumably thinking about that temptation, like it feels like the opposite of busy for you is not going to be staying in bed. So what's the opposite of busy? Well, the opposite of busy, I think that is clear to me is kind of is, is, is calmness and being very proactive and doing things amid overwhelm. So it's like not, not seeing the 
fact that there's always too much to do as somehow my problem that has to be dealt with, but just having it. And I see now in many ways that I think that is what Alan meant by, you know, a mind like water. He did not mean you're going to get to the point of uh, not having 500 items of your, on your to-do list, but that you're going to sort of psychologically detach from that fact in a way that enables you to sort of get a purchase on life and function and do stuff, not chill out and meditate on the top of a mountain. That's, some people want to do that, but that's not for me or I suspect for you. But just that, you know, in the middle of this crazy swirl of all the things you could do, all the things some people are wanting you to do, all the, all the things that would please your parents or please your friends or please, you know, anyone else in your life, you know, it's all there. None of it's completely your business. Your job is to sort of pick some things and try and do some cool stuff while you're alive. So it's that sort of calm amid the storm, I think, is the sort of image that 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 resonates with me there. Yeah. And I guess the mind like water thing is about if you throw a stone in the water, it reacts to as big as the stone is. So you like the water's reacting in a huge, you know, wavy like way if it's a huge big rock and in a tiny plinky plonky splash way if it's a tiny little you know little pebble and so the idea is if you've if you're not feeling under a huge amount of stress or busyness or overwhelm then you're reacting appropriately to what's coming at you or what's in front of you right yeah and i would add i mean i think that's the particular part of the image he draws out also like water is kind of in some sense like unaffected by uh, there isn't like an impact. I mean, there is. Let's not get into the physics of it too much. But you know what I mean. It's like <laughs> water isn't water isn't sort of shaken and broken and uh, and sort of damaged by things. And it comes falling. back to being still. It fits around. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Nice. Um, I have one other question for you, which is uh, this is an, another one inspired by your own Twitter feed. <laughs> um, so. If I went to a cabin in some isolated spot on a mountain, miles away from anywhere for the next couple of months with enough food to last me and no internet access, would I be taking a break from the real world or be in the real world? I go into lots, well, not lots. I got a little bit of trouble for this tweet because I am actually aware that it, it, it traffics in a distinction about the real world that is kind of probably bs right that that like ever whatever one <laughs> certain people with like degrees in philosophy wanted to respond look you know it's all the real world or nothing is the real world but like there's nothing more real or less real about life spent on social media or an amount on a mountain i think what i was getting at in that that thought and i do think about this quite a lot is like i think we maybe make a mistake in in believing that spending all our time thinking about national and international issues and and um grand social issues and the state of the economy and who's governing who and etc cetera, etc cetera. i think we sort of do slightly identify with that as being like the real world and then increasingly our immediate localities and physical environments as somehow not really real and i think it's, it's partly fueled by this notion that that because you need a certain amount of privilege to be able to sort of get away from it all, which you do, I agree, that it's therefore the decent job of the privileged person to be constantly immersed in in all the world's pain and suffering. And I don't think that's true. And I think we'd actually do a lot better job of addressing the pain and suffering if we uh, spent less time sort of identifying with that as our reality. I've been really struck for a lot of this pandemic how um and you know touch wood because it has not directly impacted my immediate sort of circle of family and friends really at this point and that that would be totally different if it did but like so much of the impact on my sort of emotions have been has been because of what i'm reading about right and if i if you try to imagine what it would have been like to have no access to any of that and just to be told like you have to wear a mask when you go outside. Um, for a month or two, these businesses are going to close. There's going to be this economic impact that might affect you as well. And then the businesses are going to open and you can get takeout. You know, like you've just been told the facts about your locality. 
it would have been a big deal, but it wouldn't have necessarily required like constantly thinking that the world was going to lit end uh, in a week's time. And it might have been, uh, uh, might have been better that way. Yeah. So far, anyway. Yeah. Um. So your next job is releasing this book, Four Thousand Weeks: Time Management for Mortals. So do you want to? Because uh, we'll probably put this out in January. I feel like you're the perfect person to be um, in January for New Year, New You, New Year's resolutions, Excellent. all that stuff, right? So we'll put this out um, early in the new year. So probably by then people can pre-order the book. So do you want to just give a little bit of a flavor of what 4,000 Weeks is going to be about and um, where people can find that more and contact you? Yeah, no, absolutely. The basic idea is it is sort of the challenge of time management as if we took time management really seriously as like the human problem right not just some little sort of backwater of uh of um management speak but um you know you have this time on earth if you live to 80 uh you'll have about four thousand weeks it's not very much um what are the what are some sort of time tested and and maybe forgotten about uh ways of of thinking about it. And the idea that I really pursue through that is that this effort to sort of getting control of our time is really, really unhelpful. And that um, what that usually is, is an effort to sort of avoid facing the truth. And that actually facing the truth is incredibly empowering. And, and it's the path to peace of mind, but it's also the path to more productivity and meaning and accomplishment and all the rest of it. Um, my uh, website is oliverberkman.com b-u-r-k-e-m-a-n uh by the time you put this out i will have been for several weeks uh putting out a twice monthly email uh newsletter that i'm calling uh, the imperfectionist that people can sign up for there um it's funny because right now i haven't written any of them uh, <laughs> but by january i'm 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 pledged to have begun this month in which we're recording so um uh and uh, that's also got details of that book and uh my previous ones as well. great um can't wait to read the book um thank you i'm sure, I'm sure it's going to be amazing um so oliver just thank you so much for being on beyond busy i feel like i could talk all day and maybe once the book is out we'll get you back on and um talk some more about it that would be great so i think if we carried on talking now we'd get so into the weeds on getting things done and david allen <laughs> that it would be it would be a disservice <laughs> to the listeners and i missed merlin man as well like i, yeah, I was going right. to talk to you about merlin man we'll do we'll do that another time but thanks so much for being on beyond busy well thank you thanks again to oliver for being on the show Thanks also, as ever, to Mark Stedman, my producer on the show, particularly because I sent him the audio for this one very late. So uh, thanks, Mark, for getting this out in a really timely fashion. Uh, thanks also to Emily for all of her work behind the scenes on setting these episodes up. And Think Productive are sponsors for the show. So if you are interested in productivity, training and coaching, just go to thinkproductive.co.uk here in the UK or thinkproductive.com. And all the show notes, as ever, are over at getbeyondbusy.com. So you can find all the links to everything that we talked about during the episode, links to my book, How to Have the Energy, and lots, lots more. So getbeyondbusy.com for that. And if you want to sign up for my Sunday Rev Up for the Week email list, it's simply just grahamalcott.com. And then there's a little form at the bottom of the homepage where you can check that out. So that's it for the episode. I'm off to just kind of finish my... My January planning for the year ahead, which already just feels like I'm sort of planning on a rug that is in the middle of being pulled out from under my feet. <laughs> sure, uh, sure, you can relate to that and uh, it kind of feels like everyone's in the same boat, really. Um, but yeah, going to finish my planning and really get into 2021. So looking forward to it. I hope you are too. I hope you're surviving and keeping safe. And I'll see you next week. Take care. Bye for now.